0: Good morning everybody and welcome to the third episode of Fencing by the Book. I'm your host Michael Smorridge and with me today are Johanna Hopsgardner, Michael Chillister, Stephen Chaney and TQ. Uh, this is our third episode, it's actually the second that we're recording, so it's been a week since we last spoke to each other. Uh, what's everybody been up to? Johanna?
1: So hello everybody, um, I've been doing a lot of research, I have uh, little else to do because well I'm a student, and there's currently no um, courses, so I have got a lot of time, so I've been doing a lot of research, and I I think I might have found some interesting stuff about Tarhofer and maybe about Hans Meidl. I'm not sure yet, so um, we'll see.
0: Okay, was, was that in the, the Salzburg records, or...?
1: Yeah, so um, concerning Hans Mendel, I think I found him in the Bürgerbuch of Salzburg, so in the, uh, well, let's say, um, Book of Citizens, so the um, record of all citizens of Salzburg starting um, in the year 14-something, and I think I found um, him, or let's say I found a schirmmeister, so a fencingmeister, a uh, fencing master called um, Hans Mendel, Um, In 1475, Uh, it could fit, but I'm not sure yet. Um, But since Salzburg is the city I usually live in, I might be able to um, have a look at the records in Salzburg and maybe I'll find him there or find more on um, Hans Mendel.
0: That's really cool. How about um, Hans Talhoffer? Because he's sort of one of the most instantly recognizable names in HEMA.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, so I've been doing a lot of research on um, judicial duels, and I kind of found old uh, old rule sets on um, yeah, on duels. And while I was looking through them, I, I kind of realized that they fit the description, or their description fit the images in the Talhofer manuscripts. And I also found a list of people and um, a list of dates or of people who fought um, duels in in Nuremberg or around Nuremberg um, between 1350 and uh, 1457. And I think I may have found the duel Talhofer wrote his or one of his manuscripts for. So for the family um, Stein. Um, they are mentioned in the list of people who had a duel or who challenged another one to a duel and it says that I think Puppelin um, vom Stein um, he's one of the brothers um, Talhofer mentions in his manuscripts, um, he challenged a, a Sigmund Stein to a duel in 1457 so that's real cool, that might be the one duel
0: <laughs> That's, that's... Pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, just yeah, for our listeners, uh, what kind of jewels are we talking about? Is it armored? Is it uh, lost fashion?
1: Okay. Um, it's. Hmm, I think it might be considered Blossfechten because the uh, the fighters are not ve- uh, wearing any armor, um, but they are fighting with long shields and with hmm, maces. I'm not sure if maze is the correct translation. Um, it's more oh. like wooden clubs. <laughs> Um, but they have long shields, and they are wearing no armor, so not swords, sadly
0: uh, aren't they wearing the the ridiculous leather jumpsuits
1: i uh, it's I think it's woolen, so it's wool
2: okay
1: um but they are weird jumpsuits <laughs>
2: <laughs> it's wool with a leather cross sewn on the front, isn't it? Oh, Something yeah, like
1: it is It's mentioned in the rule sets that um that the like um the jumpsuit <laughs> is supposed <laughs> to be um, made of wool and that it's supposed to have a um, red cross um, sewn or sewn to their, I think, chest.
0: So this is pretty ritualized jewels. Oh, yeah, it is. Not people fighting outside a tavern.
1: Oh uh, No. Right.
0: Cool. How, how about you, Michael? What have you been up to?
3: Uh, I started down a rabbit hole. I found a random image of a sword and buckler fencer in the HEMA mini HEMA picture Facebook group. I forget what it's called and ended up going through that manuscript and 22 others with a similar style from the end of the 13th and the beginning of the 14th century, looking for more sword and buckler fencers. There's a handful of of miniatures um, in a particular style with these manuscripts that have sort of a partial frame and then tiny figures around the border. Um, and a handful of them have been passed around HEMA uh, for years and years now, but I've been digging at digging to see how many I could find. And I've got, been through over 20 manuscripts and have like a hundred pictures now. And I'm probably gonna keep doing that and put together a, a big uh, album of My goal is to see if I can reconstruct the entire Manuscript 133 using these tiny miniatures, because there's a lot of strange 133-esque illustrations in there. And I've also found lots of other entertaining little things, um, knights and monsters and angels and demons. And I'm basically grabbing anything that looked interesting along the way. Um, But Is this the
0: sort of... Mites fighting snails and rabbits getting there Yeah, Yes,
3: and then amongst them, you'll find people doing things that look recognizably like 133 techniques, or more commonly, standing in very specific recognisable guards. Um, (laughs) And also, there's lots of little jousts and people doing um, more armoured type fighting in ways that are entertaining. Um, Also, like one of them has, for a a miniature that can't be more than a centimetre tall, a really, really detailed trebuchet with what must have just been the most sharp pen imaginable, uh, because it's really, really elaborate. Maybe it's two centimeters tall um, being operated by a donkey. And so just lots of interesting pictures. And I've been entertaining myself that way. I've spent probably three solid days going through manuscripts looking for this particular art style, and then going through the whole book when I find it to see what's being drawn in there. That's Um, cool.
0: Uh send so, so me a link to a couple of them and I'll put them in the show notes.
3: Yeah. I'll i let I put up when the first one I went through, I posted an album of it on Facebook. And then I discovered I realized there were a lot more that I hadn't gone through, and so I've just been accumulating now. But I can you can link to the first one, which is pretty a pretty good example. Sweet. Uh Steve. I wrote what
4: I call the anti-gloss, which is um
0: is it's, it the darkest timeline?
4: Yes, yes it <laughs> it's the version. So it's a um, it's it's a rewrite of the RDL glosses, kind of all combined, but from the perspective of the opponent. So it's basically yeah, it's telling you everything that the opponent is doing from like a you know as as your instruction, and also like any advice that we're given. Uh, the anti-gloss kind of gives you the opposite advice, or gives you the advice that I think that the gloss is, like, trying to train you out of. Oh, okay. Uh, so that, that um, ended up being somewhat interesting. There are some kind of uh, principles and ideas in there that I didn't necessarily expect. Some of them that I did expect, like, they parry a lot, and a lot mm-hmm. of the plays are just Throwing over how if he does this, then parry it. But <laughs>
0: okay, so so what were the things that you didn't expect to emerge from that?
4: Um, I'd have to get back to you on that
0: one. <laughs> okay, uh, no problem.
4: It's a it's a longer, uh, it, it's kind of a a little bit in so,
0: depth. So, so, so yeah. this is kind of like a, a thought experiment that you're running to, to play with the sources,
4: right? Yeah. And now somebody needs to train using the anti-gloss from the beginning and see how they do in tournaments and stuff.
0: Yeah, get some experimental data on that.
3: Right, exactly. We, We need to compare notes on this, Steve, because I know that Jake Norwood did a similar thing when he was trying to construct his common fencing curriculum, and I have his paper from that so we can sort of see what conclusions are shared and what are different. That does speak to common fencing in a big way. Yeah. What we might call common fencing.
2: Mike, you need to, Michael, you need to get uh, Jake to actually publish that at some point.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking that he said to me because he wanted me to help him finish it. And I never got around to that. And neither did he. So maybe this year. It'll be a fruit of the plague.
2: People have been talking about this paper for years now. So. It really should. Yeah, I've
3: had it in my Dropbox for years.
0: (laughs) Um, That's the way of most Hema research, I think. (laughs) Um, how how about you, T? What have you been up to? Uh,
2: Nothing of Hema relevance, really. Um, I bought a Switch uh, before lockdown, so I'm playing Zelda. (laughs) Yeah, that's uh, that's the same as a lot of people out
0: there. I think I went back to work and everybody's just talking about how good they got at Apex Legends. Pretty much. So, um, Alright, so let's move on to, to talking about today's topic for the podcast, which is the, the general fencing lessons. Johanna, do you want to read them in German?
1: Yes. So, I am reading the um, 1452 version. Okay. Das ist ein gemeiner Lehr des, äh, des langen Schwertes. Willst du Kunst schauen, sich link gehen und recht mithauen und link mit rechten, ist, dass du stark gärest fechten. Wer nachgeht hauen, der darf sich Kunst wenig freuen. Hau nah was du willst, kein Wechsler kommt in deinen Schild. Zu Kopf und zur Leib, die Zeck nicht vermeid. Mit ganzem Leib ficht, wirst du stark gärest treiben. Hör, was da schlecht ist. Ficht nicht oben link, so du recht bist. Und ob du link bist, Im rechten Aug Serie Hinkest. Vor und nach die zwei Ding sind aller Kunst den Ursprung. Zwerch und Stärk, indes das Wort damit merk. So magst du lernen mit Kunst arbeiten und wehren. Erschrickst du gern, kein Fechten nimmer gelernt.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. So we really get across the, the rhyming couplets in that. Steve, do you want to have a go at Harry's translation?
4: Yes, this is from, again, uh, Peter von Dantzig by Harry R. To have the art within your sight, set left forth and cut with right, for left with right is the strongest way to fight. He who waits for cuts and follows, in this art finds naught but sorrow. A nearing cut is good to do, your shield to stop him changing through. To head and body do assay, from flesh wounds shine not away. With your whole body you shall fight, for that is how you fence with might. A simple rule to understand, fence not from left, if right of hand. If with your left is how you fight, you'll fence much weaker on the right. For and nach, to these two things, the whole art owes its origins. Weak and strong, the word indes. Remember here on, you can learn then. With skill to work and defend. If you easily fright, you won't ever learn to fight.
0: Brilliant, thank you very much. So, so that's the, the Zettel, the poem, which is then glossed in the, the different texts that we have. Is there much difference between the different glosses in this section or, or between the different versions of the Zettel?
4: Um, there's a couple. So for the Zettel, Um, itself, the main difference that I have is, um, so in the right and left-handed one, um, the second couplet is, if with your left is how you fight, you'll fence much weaker on the right. And in uh, You'd Lev, it's a bit different. So um, this one, it's like, if you're left, then um, you're hindered in the right. But in You'd Lev, it's more like if you shrink or like Um, diminish then you're very clumsy in the fencing so it could have like a different connotation
0: okay so that seems to be more about um, being bold in your fencing
4: Um, well this kind of gets into my interpretation of the um, of what it's teaching you Um, I kind of think of it as um, if you're you know, if you're, if you're right-handed and you throw a hue from the right, um, that's how you're going to end in, like, your most extended position. If you throw it from the left, you're going to end kind of with crossed arms and you're not going to be as extended. So if you throw a cut from your uh, weaker side, then maybe you're a little bit shrunken and maybe your uh, fencing is slightly hindered.
3: Okay. Although in all likelihood, it's just a a misspelling of... Rectin, because the, the gloss, it, it, swaps, it swaps an R for a V, and it's otherwise um, the same verses. So it may just be a case of a spelling error where someone meant to write fectin and instead wrote, or meant to write rectin and instead wrote fectin. That's
4: possible, but there's also an error in the previous line, and both of the errors together form something that just happens to make sense.
3: <laughs> it's handy when that happens. What's the error mm-hmm. in the previous line?
4: um so it's like instead of uh vendu do link bist it's uh vendu do linkist
3: hmm. so
4: it changes it changes the actual the verb of the sentence from uh bist to linkist It might it might just be a pair of errors but uh i don't know maybe it's just a wild theory that i have
0: no that,
2: that's cool little detail to spot um Changing but, the last word and therefore the rhyme scheme isn't so common. So, no, the, the rhyme scheme That's more likely the, to be more or less. Linkbist to Lincoln is definitely a bit of a difference.
4: Uh, it's linkbist to linkist. So,
3: it's the same rhyme. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And in fact, it could just um, be but a that's
2: still word. more likely to be a deliberate change.
3: Could be. I doubt it, but yeah, it's possible.
0: But to, but to wind things back a little bit. We don't feel that it's saying never fence like a left-handed person. It's saying if you're a right-handed, then
3: fence. It, it could be saying that if you're left-handed, then you can't fence very well. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's ambiguous? Yeah, it, 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 <laughs> That is a way to interpret it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, hating
0: lefties, what fencers do. T, what kind of... Does the language in this section differ from later on in the text at all? Does what kind does the sort of terminology and the the language used in this section is it very different from the the rest of the text? What's what's similar? What kind of like gets left by the wayside? Technical terms.
2: This stuff's all pretty um, pretty consistent and pretty well embedded. Um, there's definitely a speaking of the left and right thing, a very limited use of initiations from the left side. And in particular, the times when you do initiate from the left side are generally reactive um, actions. So there's a few things which talk about um, uh, leaving an opening on one side to parry from the left or something. Um, but in general, it's quite consistent throughout the whole system. Um, although Ringeck, interestingly, the additional teachings that are attributed to him talk about acting from the, uh, from the left, but from below um, instead of from above. So the system changes a bit there as well. But in general, this stuff fits well with everything.
4: Although some versions of the Zettl do say don't fence above left when you are right. So that's not necessarily inconsistent with the system.
2: Yes, and I think that's a really important little detail. Like, if you're acting from below, the tactics and flow of things change a bit. Cool. Uh, Johanna, do you have something to add?
1: Now I was just thinking about it because it says Ficht nicht oben links oder rechts bist so um, do not fight above on the left so um, it doesn't necessarily say that you're not that you can't um, fence uh, or uh, below <laughs> from yeah. the left yeah. so in the lower guards that's interesting
0: we're talking about um, the the sweeps that appear in
2: Ringeck and is it pound? yeah so you have the sweeps at the end of uh, the Dresden Ringeck um, and you also have things like the plays from Shrinkut, which are often given from both sides, and Absetson, which is often given from both sides. Um, and all of the plays there are also coming from low openings. Cool. Didn't you recently
0: shift them around on Wichtenhauer, Michael?
3: <clears throat> I've been debating whether or not the plays from the sweeps should be extracted from Ringex page, where they don't really belong, and placed in a separate space, because there's no indication that Ringeck ever had anything to do with them. They just happen to show up in the same manuscript as his gloss in two cases. And in other cases, they show up separately. So it, it's a treatise that I think was misattributed to Rengek. Um But we don't actually, but I don't have a different answer as to who wrote it. Um, so it may just be listed as an anonymous treatise going forward, even though T uh, right that it is congruent with Lichtenauer's teachings, but so are the teachings of a lot of masters.
0: Cool. Um, so just to wind back a bit, um, Joey, I'm going to pick on you for this one. Um, can, can you tease out some of the, the specific examples of fencing advice that this common lesson section gives us? So, for example, we've mentioned about not fencing from the left, if you're right. Um, what are some of the others?
1: Um, that you can see in the, um, in the part we no. just read. Yeah. Oh, yeah, um, so just in the beginning, the um, you're you're asking about techniques we can see in the part which is red,
0: yeah, or or like instructions that it gives you. Um...
1: Oh. <laughs> so just in the beginning, like um every um every verse or every line is um, described in the glosses below, and we can see a lot of um like common common stuff um in there like um footwork um that you should or let's say it's and timing stuff that you're not supposed to wait so just in the first line um geht hauen, or whoever goes after hu- hearing um, der darf kunst wenig frauen, um he deserves little joy in his art um we can <laughs> interpret um, that it means that you're not supposed to to wait um, what your opponent is towards you or how he attacks you, but that you're supposed to um, seize the fore. And now I've um, put in another um, principle that we'll probably discuss later on. Um, it says, mit ganzem Leib ficht, was du stark gehrest treiben. So, with the entire body fence, so that you most strongly drive. Um, Implies that you're supposed to step um, while you cut, so you're not supposed to stand still um, while you attack. Um, But in order for your attacks to be or to have the longest reach, you're supposed to step with them. And there are a lot of little things in the um, in the verses which is read, and they are all um, explained in the glosses below.
0: Cool. So, So it also introduces before and after doesn't it oh yeah which is a little bit important well it might be important later on depends on (laughs) how you understand fencing and um the other one i want to just highlight one second is strong and weak which are properties of a bind is it strong and weak is it hard and soft i always get confused with these
1: it's 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 strong and weak or hmm, weakness and strength
2: yeah, so strong and weak, uh, which are properties of the sword, of the ones which are mentioned here in the introduction. Um, what's used throughout the rest of the text is a bit more erratic, and sometimes it's hardness and softness instead.
0: Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Thanks for saving my bacon. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll move on to some more general questions. So anyone can jump in at this point. Um, but it sort of it gives us this this fencing advice. Does the rest of the text follow it, or is it just like rules that are then going to be broken later on?
3: So I think it's it's interesting. Um, so I'll say at the beginning in this episode and going forward, my approach to interpretation is generally reductive um, for the past few years of trying to ignore any or assume that there's no need for outside information as much as possible. So I view this whole section as the most basic lesson on fencing and as a sort of a it's called geminaleo right which is the a common lesson um potentially meaning that it's not even a lichtenauer specific lesson but it seems like a fairly coherent teaching you could give someone um in in one of those contexts that we talk about sometimes of if you have one lesson to prepare someone to fight for example you could teach them this single strategy and they'd have a pretty reasonable shot at beating an opponent. Um, I think there are other masterlanded traditions who do the same thing of if you have 30 minutes to prepare someone to for a duel. Um, and that's kind of how I see this section, as giving you the groundwork for a much bigger fencing system without requiring you to know anything else outside of it. So it begins with stepping left and right. It goes into attack, don't wait for your opponent's attack. And then it explains how to attack by striking to long point and eliciting a parry by threatening your opponent's face. Um, and then it goes into the the segue of striking from your right side and ends with, with the notions of the five words before and after and indicates that if you follow these instructions before your opponent attacks, then he must defend, which is also a phrase that appears in the strike to long point, that if you threaten his face properly, then he must defend. And I see those as being referring to the same thing. So it's sort of a a short self-contained lesson on an attack strategy that will carry you through many typical fighting scenarios and also lays groundwork for that will be built on later, but the rules get thrown out the window left. If you view these as rules, they get ignored left and right later on. So they're, these are not universals of fighting. They're a basic strategy and paradigm you can use to understand a fight and then the later lessons will modify it and expand it and even tell you when it doesn't apply? So
4: um, I think uh, Michael brings up a lot of good points. Um, I think, personally, um, where where I don't fully agree with that is that um, I don't think that they are necessarily lessons I don't think they're necessarily a first lesson for a fencer. So I think if you're teaching something like always step with your cut, that's not necessarily like a first lesson that, that, you know, I would, I would want to give somebody. Um, There's a lot of stuff that you have to like, there's kind of a lot of like stuff that you need to know before, like you get to the point of stepping with the cut.
3: Sure. And then this is in the context of what we already read last week, which is, this is written for someone who knows how to fence to teach you Lichtenauer's method of fencing. So you're not taking, you know, a someone who picked up the sword for the first time, but you're taking someone who says, "I need a sword lesson," and this is the first one you give them. Right, Assuming exactly. They can hold a sword already.
4: Yeah, that's that's kind of like the point that I was getting at. Um, maybe maybe you said that before and I I didn't I, I wanted to hear it more clearly. But um yeah, this is like to me, anyway, like um an introduction into like at uh, least an hour's paradigm of fencing, not necessarily fencing as a whole, but maybe maybe trying to like train you out of things that like ways of fencing that that you might have uh, had before in order to prepare you for like what's to come.
2: The other way you can look at this is that this is like your um your ideal uh, situation, a lot of the rest of the gloss, especially of the five cuts section, um, essentially gives you ways to deal with this plan not working. Um, like if you're trying to do this and the other guy does it first, you do the one-house stuff instead. Or if they throw super strong cuts, you switch to shield, or if they throw weird kirby cuts at you when you're trying to come in, they sw- you switch to crimp or something. So you have an ideal plan. And then everything else in the system is basically getting back to your plan, um, and it's a very classic way to structure fencing teachings. There's a kind of a strong central goal that you want to you want to be employing um, your core tactic, and you have a bunch of other stuff that you can use to create the situation for that core tactic, or to rescue the situation to make that core tactic applicable again.
3: Uh, one other, the other thing I would add is that this is one of very few times in the entire gloss body that we are told how to attack an opponent in the in a vacuum whereas typically your opponent is providing you a stimulus that you're responding to across the five strikes and the hauptstücke um your opponent is doing a thing and then you're countering it even down to the fear the where you're breaking his guard he's in a guard first whereas here we're told if you have to approach a guy and attack him this is what you should do and that advice doesn't recur except possibly in when we get to long point, which is an expansion on this lesson at the very end of the gloss. So this is ver- this is sort of the only advice we're given of how to initiate a fight from thin air.
4: I want to, um, I want to touch on one thing that, um, or expand on one thing that I think Michael and T uh, touched on a little bit. And that's the idea of these being um, rules that you're supposed to follow. And I think Michael said, um, if you look at them, like to paraphrase, if you look at them as rules that you always have to follow, you're pretty much going to have a bad time because they're going to be broken. And I think this is um, so. As modern readers, we kind of want to see things like that. We want to see like solid rules and like um, you know hard and fast mm-hmm. definitions of of things. And mm-hmm. throughout the throughout the gloss. We don't really get that. Um, we get, you know, these, you know, general advice that like you can follow sometimes that are good. But you know, if better things come up, then you know we're gonna break it. And we also like when we see um, technical language, we expect the technical language to have one uh, definition, and that's also something that we're not necessarily given throughout the gloss. If if, if um, yeah, words can have multiple meanings, and we'll see that later on, I guess.
2: You can actually see that even here, um, where there's definitely some of these couplets have multiple potential meanings, um, and often you'll see several in a few cases, at least some of them show up in in the glossing where it glosses different senses of the same uh, couplet. Um, and what I'm thinking of in particular is um, the um, whoever goes after hewing. Um, uh, one, uh, he who waits for cuts and follows in this art finds normal sorrow. Um, and that can be either taken, uh, Joey highlighted the kind of try and attack first, try and be leading the action instead of reacting to it, reading, which obviously accords very well with the five words that follow a little bit later. But the other thing you see in um, glosses in the glosses of this section is the idea of chasing after their sword instead of chasing and going to the person. Um, and so this like this one couplet is referring to both of those ideas, and both of those ideas are expanded in other couplets uh, around this section.
3: For that matter, Joachim Meyer glosses it in his book. He doesn't he only raises a handful of couplets in his longsword section, so they're always like little unexpected bits. But he had, quotes this and says that what it means is whoever strikes before stepping. So whoever steps after striking in his art will have lots of sorrow. Um, so a different meaning again about coordinating your movements in a certain way, and don't attack before you step.
0: So isn't that the the exact opposite of some other interpretations of this stepping with it? Uh, well, does it? <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm in a muddle. It, it's very early in the morning. I'm not very good <laughs> at this.
2: <laughs> I've definitely, um, speaking of the structure of this footwork stuff, uh, Christian Glare, I remember, um, has argued that the uh, the sense of so the the commentaries tend to say something like,, um, uh, if you hew from the right side, then follow the hue with your uh, right foot. Um, and trusclair has argued that the um uh, the best interpretation of that isn't really you know, follow in the sense of temporally follow, but follow in the sense of support or act in accordance with um, like a follower of someone who agrees with them and supports them. Um, and that kind of sense of the verb. Um, he has a more detailed argument for this. Uh, uh, and he, he reckons that accords better with the case of the uh, like the grammatical structure of the German um, and the way the word is formed. Um, so it's not necessarily a temporal thing about the order of actions. But it might be a, ma- a matter of coordinate your body together.
1: I would agree. So by reading it, I, I... I don't think it implies that you need to um, follow it as in temporarily, but it's just, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I think it can be at the same time, but, and it can be afterwards, but you you shouldn't um, not step. So you, you should step, but it doesn't say when, or oh, that's my interpretation.
3: And it's entirely possible that Meyer's just wrong and that his fencing was not the same as what's being taught here. But it's a case of, I mean, it could be seen as a case where fencing masters don't always agree on things and they don't actually have to because they're fencing masters and they have their own authority. So if Meyer didn't want you to step while he, while you, before you cut, it doesn't mean that Lichtenauer didn't want you to, or and it doesn't mean Lichtenauer did either, but it shows a place where fencing masters can own the same teaching and present it differently and have their own opinions possibly.
4: Well, I think the, the point here is that um, we're, what we're getting at is that the, the wording of the, uh, the gloss here doesn't necessarily imply that the, that the order of the cut has to be cut and then step. Mm-hmm. And I think, personally, I think reality also backs that up. Because if you're at a distance with somebody where you can't reach them without a step, and you cut and then step, then your cut didn't reach them. It just went like passed to the ground and then you stepped into their range.
3: Uh, but unless you're cutting a long point, in which case that could be part of your strategy. That's to present the point and then step in with the thrust.
4: That's, that's 100% true and 100% valid. Um,
3: so, it, so it's context dependent.
4: Right. But also, it, but in the, uh, you know, in the common lesson, we're cutting fully down. We're cutting down, ending in front of
3: our uh, back foot. Mm. So... With that cut, well, except that we're also remaining with our point in front of their face.
2: No, no, no. Steve is definitely. Um, Steve definitely has the right of this here, because in the in couplets nine and ten, the glosses, um, uh, like the glosses, are quite clear that the, the hue is if you don't do the support your cut with your feet in this way, then your cut's too short and doesn't follow its correct path to the other side in front of your foot.
3: But we're not talking. About, we're talking about couplet eleven. Yeah. So it says the path of the cut goes in front of your foot. But the proper stopping point for the for the cut is in front of his face, so I see it as a line versus an actual trajectory. Okay, yeah, I could see that reading.
4: I, I think there's a disconnect between uh, what we're both kind of visualizing.
3: So, so nine and ten give you that angle, but thirteen and fourteen present a different um, interpretation of it, or a different a, a more that sorry, thirteen and fourteen. Present a paradigm that doesn't involve cutting to the ground. I don't think that they're in conflict.
4: Yeah, neither do I. So why why do you think that that this means that all attacks need to end in long point? Oh, I I don't, don't think that's true. I
3: think that the, I think that the general lesson is ultimately trying to teach you how to fence from long point or fence to long point. But the not compass nine and ten are not specifically precluding it or encouraging it. They're telling you what the angle of your strike should be. Is how I read that. Not that you should be cutting to the ground every time.
4: Right. I don't think that you should be cutting to the ground. I don't think it's saying you should cut to the ground every time, but I think that they're saying that you can cut to the ground, and if you do, your sword should end in front of your opposite foot.
3: Okay. Sure. Um, Michael. Yes. Sorry.
1: Um, where Where do you get your long point from? So in. The...
3: Um. In when it says do 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 uh 12 strike close whatever you will no change will come in your shield um Ah, right if you look at the gloss of that verse all right it's (laughs) it's called to 14 um in the gloss it it goes on to say um so when you're with your onset thanks with the entire strength of your body and hew near in, near to his head, into his body, and remain with your point in front of his face or his breast, thus yeah, you that's... Can train him so that he must mm-hmm. displace.
1: Yeah, that's cute. the
4: The other issue is, um if you're always cutting to long point, then you're never really cutting. You're always kind of just going for like a stab, um, which you know, is okay. stabbing is okay. um. In the context of, you know, there's plenty of stabs in the uh, in the glosses, but if you think that sometimes maybe you want to cut, then the trajectory ending in front of your opposite foot is kind of necessary.
3: Yeah, and if you're actually trying to cut through your target, then you should be doing that, and not a shallower angle cut. I totally agree with that, um, and that's the same sort of angle that Fiore encourages. Uh, he says teeth to knee. Which is maybe slightly steeper, but not really significantly so. Um, but a much more vertical cut than like the forty fives that we pr- tend to practice when we're doing cutting practice. And I think that's an important lesson.
0: But that forty fives mostly to get more chops on the tatami mat, isn't it?
3: Exactly. Yeah. It's it's there because the idea is you should be able to adjust your angle as you want to, so you don't have to use your fighting angle every single time, and. Cutting shallower means you can cut them out more times.
4: I think um, the idea, because we're never really, we're never given an angle in uh, the RDL glosses. We're never really given any angle for anything. So I think my, my hypothesis is that people got the 45 degree for an overhaul from um, from Meyer, and then kind of transposed it over.
3: I think that that's what I see Japanese cutters doing as well very often. So I assume that plays into it. It's just sort of a thing people expect and do.
4: Right. Yeah. For cutting. Yeah. I mean, like Mike said, for, for cutting tatami, like it's to get a lot of cuts out of your tatami, that for, for fencing. Like if you're, you know, in your fencing club and your, your, um, your instructor is teaching you, it's important to cut a 45 degree angle or, you know, whatever when you're fencing against a person, you know it's uh, <laughs> it's questionable where they got that information from.
3: <laughs> Meyer probably. Right.
1: I'm wondering whether they really mean foot, as in foot, or like as in leg, because in in some parts of of uh, the German area, uh, foot and leg or um, Fuß und Bein are interchangeable, and Maybe it doesn't say, or it doesn't tell us to to cut to the uh, to the right foot, but like to the right side. So that could mean um, to cut into the fluke. Um it's well, um, when being in fluke, you can keep your point um, aimed towards your opponent's face. So that would fit as well.
0: Yeah, and and that brings us back round to sort of discussing what you need from a cut because I, I, th- I think the, the tension that's kind of built up in HEMA in the last few years, last 10 years or so, is whether cuts should be able to chop something in half or whether it's preferable to end a cut in a, a point forward position to threaten a stab or... Or even if, if you're capable of doing both, of, well, you should be capable of doing both of those and having a choice. But I'm, I mean, other guys here are better at cutting than me. So is it, how easy is it to cut through a, a target and then end in
2: a, a point forward position like Flug? Um Challenging is the short answer. Um, also, don't do yourself down. You have a gold medal, I know, because I gave it to you.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, the... The way I see this question, um, and cutting obviously is a, a big hot topic in HEMA, especially if you start to ask questions about, OK, well, how much is this supposed to be used for sharp sword fighting and whatever, um, is that learning to do effective cuts teaches you a lot of stuff which is useful, even if you aren't going to be trying to cut, it, to cut through the person you're trying to hit most of the time. Um, a lot of what you learn about the way to structure and support and coordinate your whole body um, is very useful for removing your sword faster, even if you want to stop it before you hit. And it's very useful for things like driving through weak parries or demanding extra commitment from an opponent's parry, which allows you to, for example, pull your blade away and take a quick touch to a different target very quickly, um, which is a a section, uh, like a technique and idea discussed in this section. So I see couplets 9 and 10 here are basically about teaching you to coordinate your whole body um, into your cup. Uh, because then from that, you can... Do whatever you want to do with your with your action. If you want to cut through a target because you need to, then you can do it. But if you want to just throw your sword very fast and very committed and very sort of dramatically, draw a big parry that you can then quickly come off the other side and hit to the rib cage or something, uh, hit to the torso or the flank, you can do that too from the same idea. Whereas if you don't have the ability to generate that threat, then it's much trickier to draw a big parry that gives you that um that new opening.
3: To take on the question directly, the way I was taught to cut, and I know there are different cutting philosophies in the HEMA world and in the world in general, um, the cutting to the ground is mostly a question of releasing your hands. So if you keep tension through your cut, it shouldn't affect the arc or the power of the cut when it hits the target, whether you stop at your hip with the point forward or you allow allowed to go all the way down to the ground. And I can do either one, um, although I don't do the point forward one very often when I'm cutting mats, because there's not a reason to. But I, it's not a different mechanic, necessarily. It's just a question of not allowing your sword to... of keeping your hands tight at the end of the arc. So,
4: actually, a couple weeks ago, I was thinking about this question of um, cutting a long point versus cutting all the way through. And... um because when you cut into long point, you do you have to stop the sword, um, so which means you have to slow it down, and we use our our handwork, the the squeezing in um, Japanese sword arts. It's called tenuchi. You use that squeezing to um, help stop the sword as fast as you can, or you know have as as little deceleration as possible when you stop the sword in front of you, and you also use the same mechanic to um, to generate. More speed to get through a medium, um, but when you cut to long point, um, you do like you, you end up um, slowing down the sword like way earlier than you think, and also um, the the sword can never reach its its maximum speed because when you're cutting all the way through, you're basically you're you keep accelerating it until you can't accelerate anymore. But when you cut into long point, you don't really have time to accelerate it to its maximum speed. Um, so I did like really some really unscientific um, just like uh, slow motion video takes of cuts into long point and cuts all the way through. And you know i'm not I'm not perfect at cutting or fencing, but like I think I, I did the best I could to to stop the sword as as uh, abruptly as I could. And there was still, like, a significant slowdown. Um, That's not to say that you can't cut through a target um, when ending in long point, but it certainly does uh, have an effect on the overall speed of your cut. And, you know...
3: I I agree with that, that the acceleration... uh, Ideally, you're accelerating throughout your arc. Um, So if your arc is smaller, you accelerate less. But to me, it comes down to cutting in a way where you can break against your body reduce the amount of slowing down with your muscles you have to do. So if you're cutting to plow, you can swing your arms in a full arc and just not allow the sword to go down to the ground. Um, and that, I think, will end up with more acceleration, whereas the only way I can cut to long point and stop there is by keeping my elbows bent and bracing and breaking with my elbows against my chest and ending up in sort of a, a Paul's cow long point. Trying to stop it with full extension long point, right? in long point. I mean, he calls it long point. Yeah. Trying trying to stop it in full extension at long point, I think it would end up with a really shitty cut. Whereas keeping your elbows tucked slightly gives you more power and also more control. Yeah, but you got to have that extension. Yeah, I mean, right. you extend. You can extend with your arms after you get there if you really need to. I
0: I'm gonna pull us back from this
3: <laughs> cutting rabbit hole right now.
0: You um, asked, man. Yeah, I know, I know. But that's because that's we could spend hours arguing about things when also this isn't amazingly useful for the listener, I feel, without video and stuff to, to <laughs> visualize the, the motions that we're talking about. So, so instead of that, I'm going to pass out of this rabbit hole and throw us down a completely new one off to the side. Um, okay. Before you uh, build the new
3: one, then, can I, can I bring up one other unrelated point? On these verses that we we're talking about, yeah, sure. Which is the Ezekiel that? The, which is something? It's I think the main point of divergence between the glosses in the general lesson is what happens after you do this threatening strike in front of their face, um, where Ringek, compared to Demziglev and, and Nicholas, are very different in how they describe it. Um, and Ringek merely says that you provoke a parry and then. Um, you should not omit the flesh wounds, which will be described hereafter in the five hues and any other plays. So he seems to be saying that this this or this flesh wound concept is literally all of the plays that happen after the bind and the gloss. Whereas um, the other three glosses seem to suggest specific actions associated with this term. That's sort of hard to explain or even define, but it means things like mosquito bites, and flesh wounds, and touches, and so on, um, Zekin and Rurin. Um, but in Danzig and in Nikolaus, there's two options given, depending on if he parries to the side or he parries up, where you hit him on the arm or you cut him in the body. And Lev only has the arm hit. Um, but it, they don't give any indication that this extends to any other techniques besides these two examples given. And Ringek is much more expansive in how he describes it. Um, I don't know, T. Do you have any thoughts on that?
2: Um, so the ringek version um, is obviously a lot broader. Um, I mostly read it as uh, when you see opportunities based on the based on your general fencing to reach an opening, then do it. Um, so it's not strictly that the other plays are examples of touches in this sense, but that you should pay attention to the uh, the opportunity to do them. Uh, For me, one of the more interesting inconsistencies here is, or one of the more interesting details here, is that Lev describes touching to the left arm after they make their parry, which is practically difficult in a number of ways um, if they've made a a good wide parry. Um, And also that Danzig and Nikolaus describe touching to the arm if the hands are low and to the body if the hands are high. I think a lot of people have a, uh, a version of this action where they circle underneath the parry on the hands. Um, and that, obviously, is actually a lot easier to hit the arm with if you uh, if they're bringing their hands up, because you can hit the forearm in something like an ox. Um, but that doesn't accord with the way the targets are described on the
3: other two. I've um, been my head rule. against this for like a year now.
4: So another thing, um, while we're on this, another thing to notice is that in Lev, he actually never uses the word sick. He just says, um, in the Zettel, he says uh, Slega, which just means strikes.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: And lower on the bottom, he just says Ruhr, which means uh, touch. So he never uses the the word Zek, which seems to be a key word in like, the other glosses.
3: Well, I think the other ones also say Ruhrin in the body of the gloss, and they say Zekin in the Zettel. Um. And then in 3227A, it breaks up completely, and it says Zekin oda Rurin. So it uses both verbs, but as separate identities. And it doesn't tell you what the difference is.
4: It looks like um, Ringeck says uh, Zekur. Um So he's, uh, he says uh, Zek. And so does uh, Danzig. I don't know about Nikolaus. I don't have him open. So they both say Zek, uh, Zek in, the, um, in the gloss as well. Oh, yeah, you're right. But Liv does not.
0: Okay. Um, thanks for that rabbit hole, Michael. <laughs> um, it's an interesting but,
3: thing. It's it's one of the big pieces of this lesson, but it we don't have, I think, no one really understands it as well as they'd like to.
4: That's, yeah. that's what we're here for, right? That's the fun yeah. part is the rabbit holes. It's easy to just go through all this stuff and just, like, gloss over it.
3: Ha, 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 gloss over.
2: Ha. I have a... I have a version of the the dancing and Nikolaus ones I'm very happy with, but I don't understand the the level one at all. Um, but for dancing and Nikolaus, I do essentially I teach essentially a a coupe style action where the blade is lifted up and brought down on the other side. So it's kind of brought up and circled around. Um, and that way it becomes much more natural to hit the targets uh, described in the hand positions described, because if you're coming up and cutting down from above, you can hit the hand if it's low by hitting to the top of the right forearm. Or if the arms have lifted up and moved away, you can instead hit to the uh, the right flank, uh, kind of behind the person a little bit. Um, and both of them work quite nicely as touches in practice. Um, but it completely doesn't fit with the left version.
4: Yeah, the, the, that arm hit definitely is is a high percentage move in our modern fencing game.
3: Yeah. and And I've been trying to figure out a way to open up the left side more. Um, In this process and I've not gotten anywhere that I'm really happy with you can try to wrench to the left and then take the hit which is More similar to how Fiore does it although his setup is different, but I don't know I feel like most interpretations I've come up with insert way too much text of My own into this and I feel like if it was a complex movement It would be described and it just isn't so I'm I'm troubled by that
4: But Michael what does wrench mean?
3: Well, we were just going over that today. Maybe we'll see that for next week when we do Zor How. Yeah, or yeah. Whatever. That'll,
0: that'll be fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. Done? Can, can we move on, please? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Because um, this total, this totally different rabbit hole I want to go down for, for 10 minutes or so before we wrap up is that this section introduces the idea of war and knack? Or how, how do you pronounce it? Johanna?
1: Um four for, for na. Okay. Oh, before and nah.
0: <laughs> so, so before nah. and after. Yeah, before yeah. and after. Um and this is a I think a topic that a lot of time and attention has been paid on into because the a system, this is how it understands the the temporality, the, the timing of things. I'm trying to avoid saying tempo because Mission Howard doesn't have a tempo system like other types of fencing. So, uh, does anybody want to, to pick up this, uh, this topic and run with it?
3: I have thoughts, but I went first last time. So, someone else. I think T should go. <laughs>
2: um, OK, sure. Uh, so, the, I have actually a, a take on this, which is a little bit unusual. Um, and I give a version of, I teach a version of before and, uh, before and after, which depend mostly on spatial factors, i.e. directions of movement, much more than they do on time. Um, so timing becomes a kind of a derived property from the directions, the, the the actual physical directions of movement people are making. So I teach that before, um, what we have in the glosses for before is that, um, you yeah, know, yeah, the before is when you come forward with your cut or thrust to the opening, uh, before they do it to you. Um, and I really emphasize when I teach this the idea of going to an opening, um, going for an opening, uh, and that being the thing which makes them respond to you. So it's not strictly that you're acting first. It's that you're acting to an opening instead of, for example, chasing a sword or doing some feint or something. You're going to an opening, and that demands their response. And then nak I teach as being when somebody's going for an opening, you have to go after the sword. You have to follow or chase the sword. In order to prevent it from hitting you. Um, So you have this framework where it's based on directions of movement. Um, And then if one person does the vor, goes for an opening, the other person has to do the knock and go after the sword to prevent the touch. And that creates the timing because whoever goes for an opening first demands pushes the other person into the other role. But it's not so much about first or second or about initiative and reaction. It's about going for an opening or chasing after a sword. Um, and I find it fits very well with the, the written gloss around this stuff, and it kind of fits quite nice. It's a, something which you can apply in fencing quite effectively. Um, one of the nicest little applications of it in fencing is that if somebody chases your sword in some way, if you have a sword extended or waiting or, in some other way, preparing a threat, and they just go to parry your sword, you can ignore it and immediately go for their opening, because they haven't done for despite the fact they've swung first um, and that becomes instantly clear when you have this framework based on where are they moving towards are they chasing my, my sword or are they going for my opening
3: so a big lesson that people try to derive from this i think wrongly is that the person in the four um the person in the knock must displace um so they think that if they strike before the other person and the other person is compelled to respect their strike i don't think the text says anything like that um and in fact i'm looking at lev where he says um, when you come before with the hue or other such thing so that he must parry you um which means you you're doing an action that compels a parry as opposed to any action you do will automatically compel a parry which is what i often hear for discourse in Hema. um i think it's explicitly referring to the previous pieces of this same lesson the general lesson Talking about how threatening the face will constrain him to, threatening the face or the chest will constrain him so that he must parry. And it's calling that back here and saying, when you do that thing, then here is how far a knock plays into the situation. So it's very much contingent on you performing the correct action um, to seize the four, as it were, and not just you doing whatever you want to that happens to be temporarily first.
4: So the, I guess like, The the problem is, like, nobody ever really has to parry because they can just allow themselves to be hit if they want to. So I think the sticking point has to be, like, you you parry or you're going to get hit. Is that kind of what you're getting at with the yeah, Hugh Closing or, like, Hugh Nearing?
3: Sort of. I think – so in my – this is, I think, not something I can support textually perfectly the way I'd like to. In my book – A cut never threatens at all. I don't view cut as a threat, partly because when I'm in a fencing mask, I can't even see him half the time. So if you're cutting at me, I might not even know it, um, especially if we're close. So I think that the only way that you can threaten an opponent is by presenting your point in front of their face or chest, because then they can both see it and know that they're about to be hit. And there are a lot of other fencing actions that can hit and are objectively threatening, that won't make the other person feel threatened. So I think conveying threat is the, is the sticking point for a lot of these um, techniques, interpretations, and the opponent only has to parry if they know they're being threatened and they feel threatened. So getting to there is the tricky part. You can threaten with a gun from another room and I won't even know it, even though I'm being threatened. It has to be something that I can see and respond to. And to me, that means usually long point or one of the hangers.
4: No, I, I definitely don't agree with that. Um, I think you can definitely, you know, see a cut coming at you and react to it and parry it because...
3: Um, I've got to I, hit a lot of times without seeing it. That's all I'm saying.
4: Well, I've parried a lot of people who are cutting in, so we both have anecdotal examples of the opposite thing. And I also see people who who can see cuts and uh, parry them.
3: You can parry a cut, but I don't I don't think you can expect your opponent to automatically parry your cut.
4: The but way you can if you're
3: holding long point against them.
4: Yeah, but you can't ever expect your opponent to do anything. They can I just
3: that, allow I themselves to well, go. Long... Okay, I think that if I'm in long point, that yeah. unless you have longer arms than me, then you're not going to be able to hit me. Just
0: that's just taking it. And that's the idea back. they're presenting. <laughs> um, no, 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 this
2: um, is good. This is great. Yeah,
0: um, no, this is
3: amazing. This is amazing.
0: But I, I think that what we also, before we get into... Oh, it's too late to say before we get into this argument about what's a threat versus what's an attack. Is to to explain to the listeners what before and after are. Because, I mean, I, only I did have that already, didn't history. I? Um, but but with the whole um, linking it into Aristotle thing, that um, these are kind of like contemporary ideas in philosophy that were floating around at the time. Is that worth saying? Too late now.
2: I definitely don't have a philosophy degree, so. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do but I don't really have any thoughts on, on that question
0: okay, alright, let, let, let's move swiftly on to so something else that's occurred to me um, the, uh, we were, we were t- calling the the Lou source left because we thought it was closer to the, the German pronunciation um, Johanna, you did a little bit more digging on that in the last week, didn't you?
1: Oh, God, please don't let me pronounce it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I did. So um, I did some research on the pronunciation of the W um, at the end of a word in uh, Middle-High German and in Early-New-High German. And it um, it says that the sound is well, a sound that doesn't exist anymore, neither in German or in modern German, nor in modern English, um, which is difficult because um I don't speak any language where that sound still exists. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think it would be hmm, I think it, it I think it would be um, similar to um whew, a lawyer nah, if I tried, if I tried, I pronounce it as "loy" <laughs> because my um, ability to pronounce like sounds is very um, limited to German sounds and to English sounds. Um, I have to do a, li- a little bit more research and probably ask some um, Belgian or Dutch guys because the sound seems to still exist there. So I really can't answer your question right now, but maybe
0: next week. <laughs> okay, brilliant. We'll read off on that a little bit more. Um, Sweet. So I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there, unless anybody has anything else to add. And I'll promise you that we'll come back to
2: the idea of before and after in the next episode as well. I was just going to mention quickly that there are actually three more words as well as before and after. Um, there's also weak and strong, which are the two halves of the sword. Um, these are defined pretty explicitly as being the middle to the uh, hilt to the middle for strength and then the middle to the point for weakness. Um, and the idea of working from the weakness of your sword, uh, for working the strength of your sword against the weakness of theirs, um, uh, and using that to control them and make touches uh, in a bind, is described with the word indes, which kind of means within or inside or between or a variety of things like that that might be temporal and might be spatial and might be a bunch of other stuff. Um, it's a difficult word to translate properly, um, but it's you. It's treated as key to a lot of the kind of the Lichtenauer art, um, and it'll come up a fair bit later in the uh, in the podcast, especially in a there's a little poem section later that we'll probably talk about in a few weeks.
3: Uh, there's also two other words which are hard and soft, which are sometimes used in place of strong and weak, strength and weakness. In the list of five words, so it's really more like weakness slash soft and strength slash hard, and they're those are qualities of the bind, um, and uh, indicative of the amount of pressure or resistance you're receiving from your opponent in the bind. And depending on what the I guess the writer was feeling like at the time, they sometimes are included in place of the others, or they're included with them to giving seven words, which are called the five words. 227A especially makes that really muddy.
4: So I think um, I think we all have a lot more to say about uh, 4 and not. <laughs> so, uh, particularly for me, um, I would like to have touched upon the idea that um, 4 is synonymous with uh, initiative, which I don't necessarily think it is. But maybe we can talk more about that next week and maybe argue more about what is a threat.
0: For sure. Uh, and c- can we also bring in right-of-way as well to reach peak saltiness?
4: A- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be a crime if we didn't.
0: Great. All right. Beautiful science. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening in. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. This has been Fencing by the Book with me, Michael Smorage. And our panel today has been Johanna hopf Michael Chidester, Steve Chaney, and TQ. Thank you very much.